All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm glad you guys are joining us this morning. Um, Welcome to our new building. Let's give a nice little pause. Yes. Um, Yeah, you guys, it's pretty awesome. I want to thank, I mean, really, this happened, obviously, because God gave it to us. God opened the doors and gave us the ability to walk through those doors. Um, But God works through his people. And um, there are people who have sacrificed time and and skilled labor and talent and money um, to make this happen. And so it really is a culmination of God working through this community. And and I trust that this building will be a place of grace and worship and healing for generations to come. That there will be people who meet in this space to worship Jesus and hear about grace that we'll never meet. And um, they'll reap, in some senses, the benefit of what God's doing in our community today. And so thank you for joining me this morning and, and, and worshiping God and celebrating. Um, let me pray for us as we get going. Father, we thank you for the great gifts that you give us. We thank you for this building. We thank you for the resources um, that, that were necessary to renovate it and make it uh, useful for us. We thank you for those who... Um, sacrifice to make that happen. We thank you, Spirit, that you're the one that weaves it all together. You're the one that gives us the gifts and the motivations to use them. You're the one that opens the doors and then gives us the strength to walk through them. So we thank you. In the end, it is all for your glory and all for your name. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this space for your glory, that it would be a place where um, the gospel is clearly proclaimed and your word is opened faithfully and your son is lifted up and people hear about the love of God. For your name's sake, for our good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, now we get to do what we came here to do. Grab your Bibles. Let's open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off of one of the chair racks around you. Um, we have them distributed throughout the room. We're going to Ephesians chapter 5. It's page 978. If you're using one of our Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that one. It's our gift to you. We'd love to send it home with you so that you can continue to read and engage the Word of God over the course of the week. Now, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series called Consecrated. In this series, we've been talking about how God really is calling us to to consecrate our hearts uh, for what He's getting ready to do. To consecrate something is to set it apart for a sacred purpose. And so we're calling our hearts, we're calling us as a community to to consecrate our lives um, for God's mighty work. That, that he will manifest his glory and change us even as he works through us. All right, so this morning we are going to be in Ephesians 5, looking at verses 15 through 21, starting at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word of the Lord. All right, when you read the Old Testament, the God's people, the Israelites, um, met God in a building. First it was a tabernacle, a traveling tent, and then later an actual physical building, and and the glory of God actually resided in that building. The glory of God manifests itself as a pillar of smoke or or as a a pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory of God, and and, and it would reside in the Holy of Holies, this this back sacred room in the temple, and people would come to the temple to worship and to find forgiveness, and they would offer sacrifices to be cleansed from their shame. They came to the building to get close to God. People would travel from far and wide to come to the temple to get close to God. All that changed when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he, he died and rose again. And, and when he did that, he um, completely settled the issue of sin. It was no longer necessary for us to bring offerings because he was the perfect offering. It's no longer necessary for us to approach God through a building because God has approached us um, through Christ. And, um, and as a result, after the resurrection of Jesus, a new temple was made. 
And the new temple is, in fact, made up of the people of God. The building itself is no longer necessary. God inhabits his people, those who have been cleansed by the work of Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we, are, we become part of the, the, the temple of God, the inhabitant uh, place of God. And God takes residence in us. So as we gather this morning in this, what we call a sanctuary, of this new building, we gather not in the temple of God, but as the temple of God. And I want you to let that soak in for a minute. God himself inhabits his people. God is not distracted this morning. God is not distant. He's not curiously peeking in from some distant place. God's here. God inhabits the praises of his people. And as we gather as the body of Christ, we are the temple of Christ. God is here. And in the same way, the Israelites consecrated their temple. After it was built, they consecrated it to God, setting it apart for a high and holy purpose. I am calling us this morning to consecrate the temple, to consecrate ourselves, that we would be filled with the living, vibrant presence of God. God wants us to be filled with the Spirit so we can experience life in all of its fullness. The problem is we keep filling ourselves with everything else. And uh, this morning, we're either going to be filled with the Spirit of God or we're going to be full of something else. So we want to be filled So that's what we're going to dig into. Let's take a look at our passage, starting in verses 15 through 17, because 15 through 17 kind of set the stage. It is a call to clarity, okay? Starting in verse 15, Paul begins, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will is of the Lord is. All right, I'm going to paraphrase Paul here. Basically, this is what he's saying. Hey, wake up. That's kind of what he's saying. Stop sleepwalking. Stop letting this evil age rock you into a spiritual sleep. Follower of Christ, wake up. Wake up. Stop climbing the wrong ladder. Stop chasing the wrong goals. You have one life. One life. Redeem the time. Buy it back. Invest it in the right place. Don't waste your life chasing the wrong things. Pursuing the wrong goals. Building the wrong temples. You have one life. Make sure you use the best use of your time. Don't don't. Don't be an idiot. Don't be foolish. God made you and loves you and and wants you to live a life of blessing and fullness. God wants you to live in the land flowing with milk and honey. But if you're going to get there, you got to get real with this thing. You got to stop playing. You got to stop just going through the motions. You got to just stop stop just being religious and doing the right things and going through the right motions. You got to actually engage this thing. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the Lord's will? How do we understand it and how do we bring ourselves in line with it. Well, verse 18, I think, unpacks that. Verse 18 is the central tension of this passage. In verse 18, he says this, and don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, so he begins with a negative command. Don't get drunk, right? And you're like, cool. That sounds easy enough. I don't like alcohol anyway. I can check that one right off the list. Some of you are like, I love alcohol. That's a little bit more challenging for me. Well, here's the way. Whether you love alcohol or not, I think there's something really insightful here. This isn't just, I don't think Paul's just throwing some random moral command. This passage has nothing to do with drunkenness. 
or partying or, or anything else. It has to do with living a vibrant life engaged with the Spirit. And right in the middle of this passage, he throws this command out there, don't get drunk with wine. Why? I think we can see because he says it leads to debauchery. Debauchery is one of those funny words that English teachers love, right? Multiple syllables, deep meaning. It just means wasted and foolish energy. Wasted and foolish energy. Waste and foolishness. And it makes sense. You ever hung out with a drunk person? You ever seen one? When they get drunk, they kind of lose their focus on reality, right? They have a difficult time even standing up straight. Their, their speech is slurred. Their, their, their way is crooked. They're having very loud imaginary conversations about random, unimportant things with imaginary people, right? Unless there's actually a person there, then they start talking to them, but it's still the imaginary person because when you walk away, they keep talking, right? Drunk people are just weird. They have no sense of reality. They are stumbling around. They are off kilter. They are wasting their energy, and they are acting and they are speaking foolishly. They are acting in debauchery. Now, it's easy to condemn the drunk person. Well, as long as I don't get drunk, then I'm good. Well, let me ask you something. Why do people get drunk? Why do people party? Which I think is ironic, because people who party, party, party are like the most miserable people on the earth. It doesn't look like a party anymore. They're just drunk and miserable, right? Why do they do that? Why, why do people get drunk? Well, maybe it's because they want to celebrate, right? There's lots of reasons. Some people drink to celebrate, and in fact, that's biblical, right? God gives wine to make the heart merry. That's, that's biblical. The problem is they over-celebrate, right? They, there's something going on there where they're driven to, to celebrate to over-celebration to the point of misery. Sometimes it's not to celebrate. Sometimes it is to escape. They turn to alcohol because it's a way to numb something. They want to feel less of something. Sometimes it's because they want to feel more of something, Sometimes it's because there's an inherent cowardice in their heart that, that they hate, and so they turn to alcohol for liquid courage to help them do things they wouldn't normally do or be people they wish they could be, <laughs> and in their drunkenness think they are. But in the end, it's wasted energy. I don't know anybody who went on a bender and woke up the next day and were like, man, that was time profitably spent. I really got ahead. My life is more productive. I'm closer to my goals. I'm more secure and happy. My relationships are more vibrant. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. It is wasted energy. It is foolish activity. So here's the thing, you guys. I don't think Paul is just talking about getting drunk. He's using alcohol as a reference because for his Mediterranean audience, they were very familiar with wine and its effects. I mean, this is the part of the world that invented it, right? These guys knew how to make it and how to drink it. And so he's using it as an illustration. He's like, you guys are familiar with the effects of alcohol, but, but I want you to see there's actually a, a deeper principle here. We're not just talking about getting drunk. We're talking about anytime you turn, you try to fill those appetites with things that can't feed them. You get drunk, not just with wine, but you get drunk with things that you're feasting on, something other than God trying to fill a need only God can meet. You're trying to numb a pain or escape a fear or, or fill a void or run from yourself. And we do it all, people do it in their jobs. They get drunk on their jobs. They invest themselves in their careers and working the way up the ladder and, and, and making the next you know, sales associate to the manager, to the VP, to the vested interest, to the, you know, the partner. The, just working your way up because if I can just get to the, if I can just get to the, if I can just, and we're trying to feed something, and it's wasted energy. Because no matter how high you get, it's never going to actually make you significant. It's never actually going to make you important. It's never going to meet that deep need for purpose and significance in your life. Wasted energy. It's, it's debauchery, right? If it's, if it's success or, or the praise of men, how much praise do you need? A little more. It's always a little more, right? 
no matter how much you get, it's always what you got. It's in the past tense, which means you're always chasing more, right? Success, praise, comfort, entertainment, right? You're trying to feed something by, by you know, just feasting on games and movies and, and Netflix and, and um, just looking for the next thing. You can even do it with religion. Did you know that? You can, you can feed on religion as a way to avoid God. Right? Religion is, is this self-improvement project. Well, I'm going to church. I'm at church every time the doors are open. I'm going to stop doing these things. I'm going to start doing these things. I'm going to grow in self-control. I'm going to grow in self-respect. I'm going, to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And people are going to respect me. They're going to like me. And I'm going to like myself more. And you never live up to your own standards. So you're always filled with a sense of self-condemnation. But religious people aren't satisfied with that. They always put their standards on everybody else to highlight where they fall short so they feel self-condemned and condemning of others. Religious people are some of the most miserable people on the face of the earth. We can run to religion to avoid God. So people can feast on all kinds of things. They can fill themselves. They can get drunk on all kinds of things that lead to debauchery, wasted energy, foolish behavior. You're getting drunk on what can't actually deliver. So Paul takes us from that negative command. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. He takes us to a positive. Instead, he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. Instead of being filled with what doesn't satisfy, with what wastes your life and leads to foolish behavior, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a really interesting phrase, be filled with the Spirit. As you guys know, in my previous life, I was an English teacher, and that means I'm a grammar nerd. Um, I love grammar, and uh, and so we're going to do a little bit of grammar this morning, and uh, some of you are already squirming. That's all right. Every verb has a mood, a voice, and a tense. You're like, I don't care. Okay. (laughs) I understand. Just stick with me. Because the verb here where it says be filled. It is the imperative mood, the passive voice, and the present tense. Let me explain what that means. It is the imperative mood. That means it's a command. Imperatives are used for commands. That means that this isn't a a strong suggestion. It's not a friendly reminder. This isn't a question or a description or just a plain statement. Listen, followers of Christ, you need to hear me. Paul is saying that this is essential and non-negotiable for you. Are you with me? This is essential and non-negotiable. It is imperative. That means if we're not doing this, we're robbing God of His glory and ourselves of the experience of His goodness. It is imperative in its mood. It's also passive in its voice, which is interesting. So voice has to do with whether you're doing the action or receiving the action. If you're doing the action, it's active. If you're receiving it, it's passive. And this is passive in its voice. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not an action you perform. It's an action you receive. He's not saying fill yourself with the Spirit as if it was something you could do. Because you can't. The Spirit has to do it. You have to receive it. Don't fill yourself with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit must do the action. So the key is we need to put ourselves in a position where we can rightfully receive that action. The imperative then is for us to actually prepare our hearts to receive the filling of the Spirit. It is not something we can do, but it is something we can prepare for. It implies, and this is what I love, that the Spirit right now is waiting to fill you. Every minute of every day, follower of Christ, the Spirit is expectantly waiting the invitation. He's not distracted. He's not off somewhere doing else, something else with someone more important. Follower of Christ, we're commanded to be filled, which means the Spirit is always ready to fill. There's an ongoing 
invitation, which leads to the, the tense of the verb. The tense deals with when it takes place, past tense, present tense, future tense. This is a present tense verb, which means it's not something you already did or has already been done. It is something you need to do. This isn't a one-time occurrence. It is something that needs to be a present part of your spiritual life. We're talking about an ongoing filling. Something you need to continually pursue. So, it could be translated, be being filled. Be always in the state of being filled by the Spirit. So, being filled by the Spirit is something you need to pursue not only day by day, but moment by moment. It is a continual pursuit of the heart of of coming to this place where there's an invitation to the Spirit of God to fill me with His presence. Be being filled. So I want to be careful and clear theologically here. I want to make some distinctions because I'm not talking about the baptism of the Spirit. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. The Scripture does talk about us being baptized into the Spirit of God. That occurs when you believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you are baptized into the body of Christ. There is one Lord, one baptism, one faith. That occurs once. And once it is occurred, it is, it is irreversible. When you've been baptized into the body of Christ, you are immersed into the finished work of Christ. And it happens when you believe. And, and as a result, the Spirit then actually comes and indwells you as a believer in Jesus. And, and, and Ephesians 1 tells us that he becomes the pledge or the down payment of our inheritance and the seal of our salvation. So he's a small taste of what we're going to get as we continue to move toward the kingdom of heaven. But he's also the seal of our inheritance. In the ancient times, a seal couldn't be broken by anyone but the one who made it. And the greater the authority of the one who made the seal, the more secure the contents were. Put a little bit of wax on a, on a parchment and they put their ring on it. And the more authority that ring represented, the more secure that parchment was. You are sealed by God himself. And the Spirit is that seal. You are absolutely secure because nobody can break that seal, not even you. When you are baptized in the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God comes and indwells you and you are secure because your security doesn't come from your commitment to God. It comes from God's commitment to you. And God's commitment to you is absolute. And you are as forgiven, believer in Christ, as Christ is risen from the dead. Because all of your sins were paid for, all of your guilt was atoned for, all of your shame was removed. So here's the thing I'm trying to communicate. Believer, you can't lose the Spirit of God. He's not going to go away. But you can lose your experience of the Spirit of God. You can have all the blessings of God surrounding you and not taste one. You're not going to lose the Spirit, but you can lose the experience of the Spirit. That's why the filling needs to be renewed day by day, moment by moment. What's the result of this filling? If the result of being filled with wine is debauchery, a life of wasted effort and and meaningless and purpose purposeless movements. What's the result of his filling? Well, that's verses 19 through 21. There are three things that flow from this filling. They are very simply are joy, gratitude, and humility. Three incredibly and powerfully transformative gifts. Verse 19, addressing one another as a result of being filled in the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart joy. Joy in your relationship with others and then joy in your relationship with God. When the Spirit of God fills you, it changes the way you relate to people. You're no longer competing with people. You're no longer jealous of people. You're no longer measuring yourself against people. You're no longer looking for them, their adoration, their respect, their jealousy of you to fill you because you're already full. The Spirit of God and His love fills you. You're secure in that and allows you to love them instead of use them. 
It allows you to see in them the potential that God has placed in them as opposed to the limitations that you want to see to compare yourself to so you feel better about yourself. It allows you to speak to them in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to become a source of life and encouragement because you're no longer competing for limited resources. You're working from the unlimited resources of the presence of the Spirit of God. It changes the way you relate to, to God. It puts a, a song in there, right? You are singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart instead of resenting God, fearing God, uh, dreading God. You joyfully approach God because you continually hear the invitation of grace. You're no longer worried about, man, is he gonna, is, am I going to measure up? Is he disappointed with me today? Is he standing back there with his arms crossed and his head shaking? Man, you didn't, you just, you're just not cutting it, right? When the Spirit of God fills your heart, you hear the continual invitation to the table of grace. You want to come and sit with God. To bask in his presence. To, to, to have him look at you with that love and, and with that acceptance and, and to give you the meaning of his presence. So does this mean that, that when the Spirit of God fills us, that we're just happy, dappy, walking around, singing Disney songs with little birds on our shoulder? Is that, is that what I'm describing here? That, that we just become happy, happy people all the time, irrepressibly happy, right? One of those people that is just always singing, right? Singing, singing, annoyingly singing, right? No, it's not what I'm describing at all because... Really, in our, in our Western triumphalistic culture, where we want to just move from success to success to success, from one measure of joy and to the next measure of joy, we just want our lives to be this upward trend of, of greatness of experience. And in Western culture, that's what we're taught to expect. Your life should always be improving, always getting better. Every moment of your life should be better than the last. Every generation should have a better future than the previous, right? The problem is that doesn't line up with reality. I don't know if you notice that yet, but sometimes you get sad. Sometimes there's good reason to be sad. You notice that? Sometimes bad things happen. And that's not a sign that God's not with you. That's not a sign that you're not filled with the Spirit. That's a sign that you live in a broken world. And sadness is, in fact, the proper result. In fact, sometimes you're going to get angry. Like spitting nails angry. Sometimes you're going to be confused. You're going to look at the circumstances of your life and, and you're going to wonder, why? Why now? Why this? This wasn't the way my story was supposed to go. This wasn't the story I wrote for myself. This isn't the end I thought I saw. You're going to get frustrated with your story. You're going to get frustrated with broken people in your life and you're going to get frustrated with God. So how does the filling of the Spirit affect that? Here, when it says that you're speaking psalms, it's actually talking about the Old Testament psalms, like the book of psalms in the Old Testament. You ever read them? Are they all hippie, skippy, laughy, Disney singing, birds chirping? Not even close. Full half of them are laments, songs of sorrow. Some of them are, are psalms of anger where the psalmist is crying out in anger against their oppressors, against the injustice of this world, sometimes even against God, because he seems distant and far from their suffering. When it says that we are speaking psalms, it's not saying that we are becoming emotionally shallow. It's saying that there's a joy that comes in that is deeply settled and doesn't go away. Did you know that you can feel sorrow and joy at the same time? You can feel deep, profound sorrow and deep, comforting joy at the same time. Those are not mutually exclusive experiences. Did you know that you can feel anger and joy? Anger at brokenness, anger at people who are, are betraying others, anger at the way you've been caused to suffer or someone has caused someone else to suffer. You can feel anger and simultaneously, through the filling of the Spirit, experience the comforting joy that comes from knowing that no circumstance is outside of God's control and that in the end He will work through all of it to tell a better story than you would tell for yourself. 
that God works all things together for good, even when it doesn't make any sense at all. Even when you're totally confused and you're crying out to God. This doesn't make sense. There can be a calm, deep, powerful joy in knowing that the God who makes sense of things that don't make sense is the God who loves you and is for you. See, when the Spirit fills you, that joy comes in. It doesn't make you emotionally shallow. It makes you emotionally deep. It gives you a wider range of emotion. It allows you to experience the full range of proper human emotions, but to do it without being undone. I've seen people filled with the Spirit, finding it suddenly safe to cry. Sometimes for the first time in their lives, learning what it means to express sorrow in deep and powerful and even joyful ways. The Spirit of God comes in and frees us to joy. It's an amazing thing. So you can be sorrowful and joyful. You can be angry and joyful. The one thing you can't be is sinful and joyful. When we take our personal hurt and we turn it into self-pity or an accusation against God, we grieve the Spirit and alienate His joy. When we bring our questions to God, when we come to Him in honesty and say, this doesn't make sense, this, is, this feels like it's killing me, He'll meet us there. See, God answers questions, but He won't let you question Him. He will draw near to your confusion. But He's not going to answer your accusations. Joy will meet you in the sorrow. Joy will meet you in the pain and the confusion when we're filled with the Spirit, which means we need to find communion with the Spirit in our sorrow. We need to invite the Spirit in as an ally and a friend, as the lover of our souls. Joy is the result of being filled. Secondly, gratitude in verse 20. In verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, can we just pause for a minute and actually pay attention to what he's saying? A lot of religious words there. Some of you are like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Really? Listen to what he's saying. Giving thanks when, how often? Always. Ooh, that's already getting hard. And for what? Everything? Everything? (laughs) This is an impossible command. Good thing it's not a command. It's a description of what happens in our hearts when we are filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives us the gift of joy and the Spirit of God gives us the gift of gratitude. It allows us always and in all things to trust the hand of God. It is interesting at the end there, he says the Spirit of God is going to lead you to give thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to focus your gratitude on God the Father who sent Jesus to die for you and rise again on your behalf. See, what that does is is as the Spirit of God focuses your attention on the work of Jesus, it takes your attention off your suffering. When you fill your vision with the blessing you've been given, it takes your vision off the ways you feel gypped, that life is unjust. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. But there's a shifting that takes place when the Spirit of God comes in and and, and fills your vision with the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. A God who loved you that much that He would send His Son to die for you. That that He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. That, That Jesus who existed in the very essence of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to selfishly, but instead made himself a servant, a bondservant, and was obedient even to the point of death. When that Savior fills your vision, you learn to trust his heart even when you don't understand his hand. You come to be grateful for a God who loves you that much. 
a God who can take a story of suffering and turn it into a story of beauty and redemption, a God who redeems and restores because that is who He is and that is the mission of His heart. You are freed to gratitude. Gratitude has an incredibly powerful effect on your soul. You know, it's really impossible to be entitled and have gratitude at the same time. It's really, really hard to be full of self-pity and have gratitude at the same time. It's really, really hard to be resentful and full of gratitude at the same time. Gratitude has this expelling force in your soul. It drives out things that sap you of life. It drives out the, the, the bitterness and the self-pity and the, and, the, and, the, and the inward focus that just robs your life of, of purpose and meaning and joy. It fills you with the presence and the beauty and the love of God. It fills you with gratitude. You know, in America, we're really good at giving thanks. We even have a holiday for it, right? Thanksgiving, we get together with a bunch of people that, that we, we, we love. But we don't always enjoy. Sometimes difficult people, right? People we should be thankful for. And we have a big meal that we should be thankful for, and usually somebody will give thanks. Lord, thank you for the peas and the corn and the turkey and, and the house and hot and cold running water. Amen. You know, it's really easy to give thanks without feeling gratitude. It's really easy because what you're doing is saying, these are the things I should be thankful for. (laughs) But there's no genuine gratitude in your heart. That's not transformative. When the Spirit of God fills you, He releases genuine gratitude in you. And that's transformative. It doesn't just lead you to give thanks. It leads you to be thankful. To be thankful for a God who loves you so much that he died and rose again so that you could have a story of resurrection and not ruin. So you could have a story of redemption and not destruction. It releases gratitude. And then in verse 21, it releases humility. So when you're filled with the Spirit of God, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting. That's a fun word. We like that word, don't we? All true Americans love the word submit. Right? And we hate it. We're Americans, right? This is the land of the free. Don't tell me I have to submit to anybody. Who are you to tell me i got to submit? Right? I am free. I have freedom of freedom, which is all the freedoms. And if I have to submit to you, I'm not free, right? I want to be free. Well, submission is this beautiful freedom to set aside your self-interest for the well-being of another. Submission is the freedom to stop building your own kingdom of self-glory, defending your own name, promoting your own brand, making your own house of cards, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the the Spirit of God, when He fills us, fills our vision with the beauty of Jesus. Jesus, who submitted Himself for our good, who became the servant of all, because in the kingdom of God, the servant is the king. And out of reverence for Christ, it frees us into humility. And humility is strength. When you're humble, you have nothing to prove and nothing to defend. When you're humble, you can do what is right and what is good without fear of what people will think or say. When you are humble, you are able to stand squarely on your own two feet and be exactly what you were created to be without pretending or wishing you were something else. Humility is freedom and dignity and beauty. When we are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit frees us into the gift of humility. These are all transformative gifts. These are all gifts that as the Spirit releases them in our lives, we can't stay the same. 
We are transformed, as Paul said, from one one stage of glory to another. We become more and more like Jesus because the Spirit of God continually refocuses us in Jesus and, and brings us back to being like Him. So how do we do this? How do we do what we can't do? Right? You can't fill yourself with the Spirit. How, how do you be being filled? If the Spirit's the one that has to do it, how do I bring my heart to a place where it's done? All right, being filled with the Spirit means essentially tilling the soil of your heart, preparing your soul, to be friends with God. It means creating a space where you can have intimate friendship with God, where He's not just this distant idea uh, of power. He's not this, this weird image you've got in your head that you're trying to impress with your behavior or your actions. He's not somebody you're trying to bargain with so that you can somehow pull the grand lever of God's prosperity or whatever. He's your loving Father who sent Jesus your Savior and gave you the gift of His Spirit. That weird idea of the Trinity, three in one, three who's one what, but this mystical idea that this transcendent, sovereign God loves you and wants to be with you. The best analogy I can come up with for this is a good marriage. I always hesitate to bring up marriages because I know so many of them aren't good and some of them are irrevocably damaged and often broken. And I don't bring this up to be condemning in any way, but, but I think it's a good analogy because in a good marriage, in a good marriage, it's still a hard marriage, right? So in a good marriage, when you get married, you, you get together and you say vows, which means you're already lying. It's a good way to start a marriage. I will always submit to you. I will never act selfishly. I will forever, ever, ever pour my heart out at your feet. Liar. All right, so we we start out with vows that we know we're not going to keep. And then there's magic words and some dust sprinkled, and suddenly you're married. Then you go sign a contract. And we know that marriage is more than just a contract. It's a covenant. Marriage was created by God. And when we enter into marriage, we, we are not just entering into a contract. We're actually entering into a covenant relationship with this other person, which means God's at the center. God's at the center of that. God's the one that, that, that is melding that thing together, right? So that commitment is real, and that connection is real. But there are going to be days that you don't feel close to your spouse. And I'm talking about good marriages. There are going to be days when your spouse looks like an alien. And you're going to think, what the heck did I do? And why did I do it? Are you doing that again? We're talking about this again? You want to do what again? Right? I mean, there's just, there's, there are going to be days when your spouse feels a million miles away from you emotionally and unintelligible intellectually. But here's the thing. None of that takes away the covenant. You're still married on those days. Right? The covenant still exists. You aren't experiencing the joy of the covenant, but the covenant's still there. So how do you renew the joy of the covenant? How do you renew? You have to pursue the joy. You have to pursue the joy. You have to act in a way that fosters warmth of intimacy that shows respect and mutual valuing, that confesses personal sin and offense, that invites once again to intimacy. So it requires confession and humility and transparency. It requires communication. Words are important. Shared experience. And it requires submission. It requires me to look across at you and say, I submit my desires for your good. I will not demand that you revolve around me. In a good marriage, you have two people that are insisting on revolving around the other. You have two people that are mutually submitting themselves to one another. 
living for the, the joy and the good of the other. So they don't even have to think as much about their own joy because they know. You're looking out for me and I'm looking out for you, right? That's how you pursue intimacy in marriage. That's how you pursue intimacy with God. Now here's the thing. Even in the best marriage, you're talking about two sinners that are trying to figure out how to pursue oneness, and that's always a recipe for difficulty. In our relationship with God, the covenant is perfect because He is perfect. God is continually pursuing you. He's not just waiting, He's pursuing. God is actively working to draw you near. He's constantly provoking you with His love to provoke a response in you to that love, that you might once again respond to that love and love Him in return. There's a continual invitation back to the, to the place of intimacy and joy. To be filled with the Spirit is to respond to that. It is to communicate with God. It is to enter His Word and to respond to that Word. It is to enter into prayer and talk with Him. It is to be part of God's community where the Spirit of God speaks through the relationships and, and allows you to experience the presence of God in, in relationship with others. To be filled with the Spirit requires us to come back to this place of wanting to hear and wanting to submit. Of wanting the Word that I might joyfully carry it out and follow it, even if it's hard. Because I trust his heart so much, I will follow his hand. Some of you feel like your relationship with God is like a bad marriage. Some of you think, man, I've, I've sinned too much. The rift is too large. I think God has abandoned me. And when you think that, you misrepresent God in your mind. Because he's already paid the price to bring you back. And that ticket's irrevocable. Jesus laid down his life, died and rose again, that you might have a continual invitation of grace. Believer in Christ, you are as forgiven as Christ is risen. There is no rift too great. There is no shame too defiling. There is an invitation back to intimacy continually. It simply requires you to once again invite to humble yourself and invite because he stands ready to pour out his love into your life. The Spirit stands ready to, to fill you even now. And you're like, yeah, but Steve, there was a time when I was filled. There was a time when I was vibrant in my Christian life and that was a long time ago and I've walked away from it. I'm not sure I can go back. Can you really be filled, lose it, and get filled again? And the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, that's the normal experience of the Christian life. We need to continually pursue the refilling of the Spirit. We've been studying the book of Acts. Last spring, we were in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have Pentecost, which is this crazy moment where the Spirit of God comes down and fills the church, and there's crazy stuff. Man, people speak in foreign languages, people getting healed, and these guys are filled with joy and humility and gratitude, and, and they are so transformed, so filled with the love of God, they're pouring out into the streets, telling others about it, they can't even help themselves. And then in Acts chapter 4, Persecution comes into the church. Some people get arrested. They're locked up. And the church is wrestling in prayer all night long. Struggling with what's happening. And, and the persecution they're now facing. And the, the feeling of abandonment. And as they're praying, at the end of Acts chapter 4, it tells us the church was once again filled. The ground was shaken. And the church was filled. There was a refilling of the church. Listen to me, we are to continually pursue the refilling of the Spirit of God in our lives, individually and corporately. It isn't something that is meant to be done once and for all time. It is something to be pursued and re-pursued. So if you've grown cold in your relationship with God, i got great news for you. The invitation never grows old. And the, ex the experience never grows stale. It simply requires 
that you once again till the soil of your heart, preparing it for the gift of gratitude and humility and joy. Because intimacy can't be assumed, it must be pursued. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're not going to get drunk with wine. Why would you? When you're filled with the Spirit, you're not going to get drunk with your career. Why would you? When you're filled with the Spirit, you're not going to get drunk with and addicted to people's approval of you. Why would you? Because your heart's needs are filled. The Spirit of God is, is filling you with all the fullness of God. You are experiencing His glory to a greater and greater degree, His love and acceptance to a greater and greater degree. And it frees you from the addictions and your needs to pursue things that don't fill and don't feed. It actually transforms. Because you'll be filled by love, the most satisfying, powerful, transformative force in the universe. Friends, we need to consecrate ourselves. We need to consecrate ourselves today. Let's renew our awareness of God's love for us. Let's till the soil of our hearts. Let's be clear-minded and sober and once again pursue the deep and transforming experience of the presence of God. God's getting ready to do wonders. He's calling us to get ready by consecrating ourselves. We pray for us as we go into a time of response. Father, I thank you for the incredible gift of your spirit, the gift of yourself, the gift of your presence. I thank you that you inhabit not just this place, but this people. You inhabit us. I thank you that there is a continual invitation for those who are outside the people of God to come in, to believe in Jesus. There's a continual invitation for those that are, that are the people of God to renew their experience of the filling and the presence of the Spirit. Spirit, I pray that you would break the pride of our hearts. We can't till the soil of our hearts unless you give us the motivation and power to do so. So we humble ourselves and admit, Spirit, we need you to even get ready for you. Spirit, give us hearts of submission. Give us hearts of joy and love. Give us hearts that respond to the beautiful, beautiful sacrifice of Christ. that we might be awakened to joy and gratitude and humility. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.